Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name's Ryan. My name's Brent. And this episode, welcome to zip code 771666, because it's SST 236, the Tar Babies Honey Bubble LP. We've had the Tar Babies on a couple of times before on the show. Really interesting band, and this time getting extra funky. And to help us get extra funky, Brent, we've got a special guest. Yeah, we've got Steve Lewis on the show. Very cool to have Steve on the show. I must admit, I've never really dove into this record or Steve's playing, but I was uh, refunkified oh, yeah. listening listening to this. I got to tell you, I mean, like every kid like me who started playing bass like in the late 80s, early 90s had a, a massive like slap funk era. Yep. And uh, Steve would have been like one of my idols. And I totally, totally just got like way back into it. So it's very cool. Yeah. I wish I would have known about them, but you know, they weren't that well known where I grew up. So it's great to discover them now. Mm -hmm. Anyways, Brent, why don't you hit us with some spiels? Okay. Brace yourself, Ryan. This is book report part two. What? Yeah. So it's, I'm calling it my next 20. So do you know do you know the Dewey decimal system? No. No. Uh, okay, well good luck with your next 20 then. So last week I talked about all of the books I read over our Mojack vacation. This uh-huh. week all of the books I want to read. You're going to name 20 books? Yeah. Whoa. This is just some of them by the way. Uh, you know, some I've already talked about like um, you know, the Greg Graffin book, a part 3 of the Jerry A. Lang book, um, the John Corbett book, Vinyl Freak. That one's so good. Yes, Ooh. so many more. Oh, speaking of John Corbett, I'll start with one uh, that he mentioned was forthcoming when he was on our show, episode 227, by the way, if you haven't heard it. Oh. And bear with me here, Ryan. Uh, all of these books are in a massive pile on my floor, so just give me one <laughs> second here. <laughs> While I'm getting doing this, get your pen handy, okay? My pen is handy. It's always handy. Because I, I think you're going to need it. You don't think I know all these? I don't know. We'll see. You tell me. All right. Okay, so this is uh, one that John mentioned. It's called... Then I know it. You know it? (laughs) Holy Ghost, The Life and Death of Free Jazz Pioneer Albert Eiler. Wow. That looks so cool. Look at the cover on that. Yeah, by Richard Colota, Jawbone Press. So we're going to check that out, Ryan. Okay. Wow. That looks good. The artwork is just insane on that. Yeah. In, in a similar vein, Ornette Coleman, The Territory and the Adventure by Maria Golia, 2020. Uh, just came out in paperback last year. It's a wow, big, that, it's a big one. Yeah. That looks big. Yep. It's like, yeah, not that big. I love me some Ornette. I haven't listened to Ornette for a while. That's a good reminder. 350 pages. Okay. Check this one out, Ryan. Major Dudes, a Steely Dan Companion. Edited by Barney Hoskins, 2019 Abrams Press. I say edited by Barney because this is actually a collection of interviews, reviews, and other writing on the Dan. Hmm. I know I said one book at a time, but this is the type of book you can read in bite-sized snippets or even skip parts that you're not interested in. Hmm. So, you know, it's good to have a few of these in service at all times. Now, do you like the Dan? I've never asked you. Do you do the Dan? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Right. Do you? 
No, I've never really went there. No. It's like, this is Reelin' in the Years, right? Is that the band? Yeah. Is that the one that does Reelin' in the Years? That's the band. So, like, there are probably earlier albums and deeper cuts, though, that are good, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I don't well, know. You should, you should check them out, man. I'd appreciate a Dan recommend. Like, which album should I start with? Like, not, not the Reelin' in the Years one. Not that one. Oh, well, probably the famous one, Aja. Aja? Yeah. Okay, yeah. I see that. I see that a million times all the yeah. time. Yeah, okay. Or Pretzel Logic or, um, I don't know, those would be a good place to start. Okay. Maybe I'll give it a try after some Ornette. Yeah. Uh, similar to that and on the tree, Chris D's Writing for Slash, 1977 yeah. to 81. The know-it-all years. Totally awesome to have all of these uh, record and show reviews in one book. Some amazing photos, too. Out now on Chris's own Poison Fang books. Have you had a chance to dive into this at all yet, Ryan? I, I did the first chapter. It's pretty darn good. Uh, but then the Greg Graffin book showed up and I went into that and the rest is history. I got to pick it back up. Yeah. Well, it's like I said, it's one of those that you can pick up and put down, right? Yeah. Good to have a few of those going at all times. This one's been on the pile for a while, probably because it's a daunting looking read. Can All Gates Open, The Story of Can by Rob Young and Ermin Schmidt, 2018, Faber and Faber. For starters, it's 550 pages. It's kind of split into two parts. I'll just read you what it says in the back here. In part one, Rob Young gives us the full biography, an in-depth and an exhilarating history of the band. In part two, Ermin Schmidt presents an intimate collage of memories as well as a series of talks with musicians who cite Can as an influence, including Bobby Gillespie and Mark E. Smith. Wow, cool. Yeah. You know, I went I went for coffee with Malcolm Mooney this summer. Oh, nice. I, well, I, well, I guess that's summer 2022. And uh, yeah, didn't talk about Can at all. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I wouldn't, and, I, and I'm not, I'm not like, you know, I'm acquaintances. I'm not close friends or nothing either. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't say I'm a can super fan. Like I have a few of their records, the, the, you know, the more well-known ones and I do like them a lot. So when I say I'm not a fan, what I mean is like, I just don't know their sto story on a deep dive level. So I intend on, on having this book remedy that for me. Yeah. Then you're going to be into it. Then I'm going to be into it. Okay. Hold on. Full bore. Next pile. One second. Oh. oh my God, look at that. The calnesthetics required to grab a pile of books off the ground. Yeah. Just insane. Okay, I was saying last week that I like to buy fiction written by musicians. So mm -hmm. here's a few of them. Tonkin, a book published in 2010 by Quinn Haber of Treacherous Jaywalkers. Wow, no way. That's right. Yeah, it's historical fiction set in 19th century Paris. Wow, Quinn was such a nice dude on the show. Yeah. Let me know what that one's like. I'd, well, be, I'd be interested to check that one out. Yeah, this one might take me a while to get to. It's almost 500 pages. Wow. Yep. Not 500 pages, probably a pretty quick read, is this one by J. Christopher Tarpey, The God Blade. Can you see the cover of this, Ryan? That looks like Conan the Barbarian artwork. Look at the back cover. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, Chris, you won't be surprised to hear this based on the artwork. Christopher Tarpey is vocalist for metal bands Eternal Champion and Iron Age. I know I've talked about both of them on the show before. This is like sword and sorcery fantasy. It's called The God Blade. Like the, the first thing you see when you open it is a map. Oh, of course. Of like 
of course the realm that we're in you know the realm of course (laughs) the realm there you go Uh, it's it's not illustrated though hey no it's not illustrated but it looks like it could be it could be um if you go on the publisher's website dmr books there's a number of metal musicians with similar titles to this it's kind of their thing super cool and it's really short so i'm going to check that out uh, the Exploding Memoir by Johnny Strike of legendary San Francisco proto-punk band Crime. Mm, cool. Check out this review on the back cover by Mike Stacks of Ugly Things Magazine. Wait, is that is that fiction though? Yeah, it's fiction, yep. Oh. Kind of, I think. It's, it's called Exploding Memoir. That's well, so it's... It, it blurs the lines. Check okay. this out. Okay. After settling in San Francisco's Chinatown, Eddie Knox is taken under the wing of the mysterious Dr. Kublar, who sends him on a series of covert missions involving an ancient stone tablet that holds powerful occult secrets. The story moves along at a propulsive rock and roll clip, pulling us through a chain of bizarre plot twists that draw on elements of vintage crime and science fiction, shot through with sex, drugs, and mystery, and splattered like blood from a syringe against the backdrop of San Francisco's underground music scene in the early 70s. Like a well-thumbed crime thriller, once you pick up the exploding memoir, you won't be able to put it down. It sounds fictional. It, well, I think it is. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Confirmed. Okay. So a year or so ago, maybe more, actually, I spieled about this amazing book, In Heaven, Everything is Fine, which was written by Josh Frank and Charlie Buckholtz about the super interesting life and death of Peter Ivers. Uh, the full title actually includes The Unsolved Life of Peter Ivers and the Lost History of New Wave Theater. Right. Remember? Yeah, remember? yeah. No, I, I do remember that. Was there, there was like a murder involved in that, right? Or something? Right. Yeah, he was murdered. And okay. So I read that book. I'm spe- I spieled about it. But this is kind of like, you know, the, the compa- unofficial companion book, mm. which I haven't read yet. Some say he was murdered by this guy, David Jove, um, who we first heard about from Merrill Ward, by the way. Uh, when we chatted with him way back on episode 93. This book, Freedom Spy, David Jove, and the Meaning of Existence by Ed Oakes is one I've been wanting to read for a while. This guy's got a wild story. And he's Canadian. And he's innocent until proven guilty. Exactly. Okay, gotcha. Three quick mentions. I've talked previously about how Hozak books are my current favorite uh, book imprint. Mm. So we've got uh, three that I've been looking forward to from from Hozak. When Can I Fly? The Sleepers, Tuxedo Moon, and Beyond by band member Michael Belfer with co-writer Will York. Like, you know, kind of like Can. I know these bands, but I need to know it all. Check out this Carducci spiel on the back cover. Oh, Joe's on it? Yeah. Nice. I've always wondered what the hell was going on down there before 1980 when the Sleepers were the band. And now I know because all the answers are here in Michael Belfer's book. And they are hilarious and tragic and sometimes just criminally insane. Mm, that's pretty good. Also, Ryan, Wicked Game, the true story of guitarist James Calvin Wilsey yeah. by Michael Goldberg. James was, you know, a troubled man who was guitarist in the Avengers and rose to fame as guitarist in Chris Isaac's band, hence the title Wicked Game. Mm-hmm. I'll probably read these back to back, these two, to get, you know, some heavy duty San Francisco action. Good move. Yeah. Guilty. I need to give you the full title here. Guilty. My life as a member of the Joneses, a heroin addict, a bank robber, and a federal inmate by Jeff Drake. Wow. The back of that, 
you just showed me the back of it. There's so much teased hair oh, on the I back know, of that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so Jeff was brothers uh, with the Humpers, Scott Deluxe Drake, uh, who he later played with in a band called The Vice Principals. I can't wait to read this. I'm a huge fan of the Joneses. So yeah, looking forward to getting into this. I'll probably read this next. I, and I don't have it yet, but B.B. Buell uh, released her memoir on Hozak late last year. And right. there's a, an SST connection. She's totally. married to Jim Walters of Dos Domin. Totally. Yep. Okay. Last pile. Yeah, because that ain't 20 yet. We're not at 20 yet. Hold on. Oh, man. France going to the, the, the east wing of the Mojack stacks. This is a big pile. Look at them. Look at them. Oh, my God. I'm throw my back out here. You better get some A535 after this. Okay, I can't even pick this up all at once. Hold on. Hold on, hold on. This is turning into a shit show. Okay, a couple more of the pick them up and put them down variety. Zeppelin over Dayton, guided by voices, album by album by Jeff Gomez. Mm. This, this came out in 2020, so I'm sure Robert Pollard has released like 80 more albums since this <laughs> came out. Uh, also on Jawbone Press, by the way. I bought this with the intention of checking out all of the Guided by Voices albums in chronological order, and that's still my intention. So uh, I am definitely a Robert Pollard novice. Are you a fan, Ryan? I am a novice. What I've heard, I like, but for some reason it, it has seemed a bit daunting, I guess. Wow, there's Be so much, man. Yeah, because like when I like something, I want it all. Yeah. And I worry that I can't get it all. Well, yeah, it's not just Guided by Voices. I mean, he's got so many other side projects, too. I know, I know. What I've heard I like, though, but but I haven't dove deeply. I'll be interested to hear if this is a good uh, a good guidebook. Yeah. Okay, you know I love Nikki Sudden. This is Nikki Sudden, Hearts of Wine and Rebel Graves by Miguel Ferrez Lopez. Self-published. Likes the Steely Dan book. It's kind of a collection that he put together. Some yeah. of Nikki's journal entries... Uh, some writing Nikki did on other bands, you know, when he, when he died, he, he was, Nikki was a prolific writer, you know, he wrote for a lot of magazines and stuff. He was working on a book about the history of a, of a residence called The Wick, which Ron Wood lived in for a while. The main bulk of the pieces are pieces written about Nikki by friends, family, and other musicians. Just flipping through it, it's like a who's who, like Lee Ronaldo, Captain Sensible, Jeff Dahl, Billy Hopeless, Tav Falco, uh, Thunder's biographer Nina Antonio is is in here, Chuck Prophet. Lots of incredible photos. Um, for a Nikki fanatic like me, this is the shit. Yeah, that, that must be from Europe though, right? Like where is it from? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Okay. You can get it. Like on Amazon. Okay. It Never Ends. A Memoir with Nice Memories by Tom Sharpling. Obviously, I love Tom and The Best Show, and this got some really good reviews, so I'm really looking forward to this. Hmm. Speaking of Thunders, I read everything and anything and everything to do with him and the dolls. Finally got around to picking up Stranded in the Jungle, Jerry Nolan's Wild Ride, A Tale of Drugs, Fashion, The New York Dolls, and Punk Rock by Kurt Weiss. 2017 Backbeat Books. Got good reviews, so I'm looking forward to reading a bit more detail on Jerry's life. Most of the Dolls material obviously focuses on Johnny and David Johansson. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Looking forward to that. I saw this on your pile too, Ryan, this one. Barry uh -oh. Adamson, 
Up above the city, down oh, beneath yeah. the stars. Yeah, I want to read that so bad, but I've had it on my shelf for like a year. I know, hey? 2021, Omnibus Press. Uh, it's, as it says on the cover, magazine, The Bad Seeds, Into the Underworld and Beyond. Oh, you know it's good, right? Yep. Similar to Barry's book, The Light Pours Out of Me, the authorized biography of John McGeeck. Uh, came out last year, also Omnibus, by Rory Sullivan Burke. John was, of course, also in magazine, Susie and the Banshees, Pill. Mm-hmm. Definitely deserves to have a book written about him. So I'm looking forward to that one. Needles and Plastic, Flying Nun Records, 1981-88. to 88. Third yep. Man Books, 2022, by Matthew Goody. Yep. Have you picked this one up, Brian? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so this book tells the story of New Zealand label um, Flying Nun Records through the story of the records. Just yeah. thumbing through it reminds me a lot of that Disturbing the Peace book on 415 Records. Yeah, I'm worried that when I read that Needles and Plastic book, my bank account is going to oh, yeah. go is going to go way down it's going to cost you some money for sure yeah I, I have to admit i am the furthest from an expert on flying nun so me too i me can't too. wait to read this yeah i feel like there is a lot of territory there to cover that and i've i've always you know unfairly grouped together australia and new zealand those scenes mm-hmm. and and I still even feel like i've only ever scratched the surface of australia much less new zealand yeah. Well, I know enough to know that they're pretty different scenes. Yeah. Yeah. Last but not least in my next 20 and disclaimer, I'm about half done this book. So it's really, you know, my next 19 and a half, uh, is this on the street. I met a dog, the autobiography of mm. Greg Prevost of the Chesterfield Kings mm-hmm. to say I was excited when I saw this get announced would be an understatement came out last year on Italian record label misty lane's book imprint i got my copy through mike stacks at ugly things it's pretty limited so i'm not even sure if it's still available tons of photos a discography it looks like some crazy detail on the chesterfield kings so must have if you're a fan must have now i say these are my next 20 but that will undoubtedly change uh lucinda williams autobiography comes out this month and i'm a huge fan i mm. It's already pre-ordered, uh, so I'll likely get into that when it comes in. I also pre-ordered Jim Rulin's new book, his fiction book. Looking forward to that. Oh, yeah. Where's Jim's uh, Lemonhead's book at, I wonder? Yeah, good question. And there's another highly ante- anticipated book that you told me I'm not allowed to talk about because of, you know, potential spiel scoopage. So. Yep, I've got, a book, I've got a book report coming up. Keep your trap shut. Okay, well, so just so you know, I also pre-ordered that. Oh, no way. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. That's my, uh, that's my next 20, Ryan. Wow. Yeah. You're not going to stick with that. <laughs> Any, you find anything in there that piques your interest? I think the book on John McGeeck is probably one of the ones that you pulled up that I don't have that I would be interested in checking out. Yeah. Uh, some of those ones I know would be great, but I think you need to be more of a fan than I am, like the Nikki book or the Chesterfield Kings book. Like I'm not, I'm just not that. I have some of their records. I enjoy them, but not enough to read that stuff. Yeah. Well, it's like I've said before, you factor in the cost of getting some of this stuff over here Ugh. and you know, you kind of have to be a, a super fan to totally. justify it. Totally. What do you have, Ryan? All right. For my spiel, my spiel is much shorter. I think it is uh, part one 
of a new segment for me called Flea Market Finds. Mm, yes, I've been looking forward this to this since you teased it last episode. <laughs> yeah. So uh, part it's a two-parter. I've got one this week and one next week because this week it has a tie-in. And next week, my Flea Market Find has a tie-in. This week, it's part one, Wisconsin edition. Okay? Mm. Okay? How, how timely. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So I found this at the flea market not too long ago. John Kruth's Midnight Snack record. Yeah. Remember spieling about that one? I do. I've been trying to find that record for, Remember? you know, like a year and a half now. Yeah. I'm pretty so, jealous that you found it. I'm not going to lie to you. Yeah. And it was like 10 bucks. And, yeah. and no one was ever going to pay attention to that record at the flea market. But, but thankfully, you know, we do the show and I, I, I noticed it when I, when I was flipping through the bins. So from Milwaukee and a frequent collaborator with Brian Ritchie from the Violent Femmes. Brian, of course, has had records on SST that we've covered on the show, like SST 141, The Blend, where Brian Ritchie was a guest, and then SST 186 and 187, The Nuclear War, Atom Krieg, 12-inch duology, where John Kruth was actually a guest. Um, and then John, of course, was also on SST 202, the Brian Ritchie record Sonic Temple and Court of Babylon, where we had Peter Balstrieri on as a guest. And then uh, most recently, we had SST 227, the Sun Ra EP. So John is a multi-instrumentalist, best known for mandolin, and he's also an author. He has over 10 or so solo albums, and this one, Midnight Snack, is his first. It's uh, from 1987 on Hopewell Records. Brian Ritchie's on it. Victor DeLorenzo's on it. Greg Gano is on it. That's the Violent Femmes, of course. Also frequent Brian Ritchie collaborator and Mojack guest, Peter Balstrieri. Matt Balatseris is on this record. He's a, a jazz guitar heavy from New York. Uh, Sigmund Snowpeck III, yeah. another a multi-instrumentalist who also appears on Violent Femmes record. Is he like a member of the Violent Femmes, unofficial? No. No, no? Okay. not an, on. A, yeah, he was played with them for sure. Okay, yeah. so Sigmund Snowpeck the third, and and there's like you know two dozen people on this record, of course, right? Yep. How Howie Wyeth is on this record, a drummer who played with Robert Gordon and I think Link Ray as well. Hmm. Recorded at Mark Dan Studios in New York, and Mark Dan is also on this record as a uh, a performer. Also recorded at uh, Midwest Recorders and Scientist Sound Labs in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. It's a neat record. I probably would not have sought it out had we not had Brian Ritchie releases on the show and John as a guest. It kind of, it's funny, like it didn't have enough mandolin for me <laughs> in, a, in a certain way. Then you um, should check out his album, Banshee Mandolin, Ryan. <laughs> yeah, I know. That, that's the style of, of mandolin he plays, I know. The uh, the album artwork is cool, and the recording is great. It, it's kind of like a like a party band record, is the best way I could describe it. And I, and I know that's doing it a disservice. People who are fans of Brian Ritchie's records should definitely check this out. I do tend to like the Brian Ritchie records better than this one. But when Brian comes on with his acoustic bass sound, uh, you know, that very distinctive sound, uh, the tracks are just killer. Probably the best song for me on this record is called Stretch Marks and Hairlines. Very cool track. I don't know. Definitely worth checking out, especially after doing those Brian Ritchie records. When I, if I stumble across more drawn Kruth records, I will pick them up. And I've got to listen to this one a little bit more. Um, I think I feel like there's something I'm missing out on. 
Um, it just reminds me of that Milwaukee kind of party scene. That's yeah. what this that's what this record really seems to capture for me. And and maybe because that's not part of my DNA, it takes uh, some more listens. But uh, cool record. Glad I stumbled across it. Love going to the flea market. Went there this morning, picked up some more records. And uh, can't wait to get to Flea Market Finds Part 2 next week with a Henry Kaiser tie-in. And that's a flea market find, not a sieve-fisted find, right. by the way. Yeah, flea market find. Okay. All right, man. Do you want to uh, get funky? Hell yeah. History lesson, part one. All right, here we go. Back with the Tar Babies. We've had them on a couple of times before, like I said. We had them on episode SST 101 with the fried milk record where Bucky Pope was a guest. And also SST 169, the no contest record where... Tony Jarvis was a guest, but this record is definitely a step change to my ears. I went back and listened to those earlier records and they're both funky. Don't get me wrong, but this is like on another level. Tar Babies, of course, from Madison, Wisconsin. And uh, the original lineup was Bucky Pope and Robin Davies from originally from the Bloody Mattresses and then Dan Bitney and Jeremy Davis from Mecht Mensch. Eventually, Jeremy left when they signed, about the time that they signed to uh, SST. Tony joined for the uh, No Contest record on sax, and then Robin left. And that's when Steve joined, our guest on the show for Honeybubble, and just like totally uh, brought this band to another level of supercharged, weird, totally weird funkiness. It's a cool record. Yeah, I think we should probably just throw to Steve and then we'll we'll chat some more. Yeah, man. All right, we're joined on the podcast today by Steve Lewis. Steve, thanks for being on the show. You bet, thank you. Okay, so I want to go back. Are you from uh, Madison originally? I am. Yeah, I uh, moved here when I was one year old in 1963, uh, so I pretty much lived here all my life. Okay, when did you first pick up the bass, or what, what was that your first instrument? Um, I first picked it up when I was in high school. I was in a punk band with a couple of friends, a guitar player, and I played guitar and piano, and uh, the other friend played drums, and kind of like what often happens, nobody would play the bass, so I had to do it. <laughs> <laughs> what was the band? We were called the Monads, mm. <laughs> M-O-N-A-D-S, um, came from our philosophy course, um, Leibniz, I think, uh, mm -hmm. had a thing, a, a theory about Monads, and we just liked the sound of it, so yeah, that was our name. Did you play with the Bloody Mattresses? Uh, we did, actually, I think in 81, maybe, or yeah, I think in 81, we both opened for Black Flag when they mm -hmm. came. Mm -hmm. and that was when uh, Des was singing in the band. Oh, wow. Where where was that? Like, where what was the, the main club in Madison? It was Merlin's. It was right on State Street, just off campus. And, uh, yeah, it was a great club then that just was open for a few years. Mm. Saw all sorts of great bands there. Like who? Oh, um, well, Iggy Pop did like a three-day stand and wow. actually met him. Um, all sorts of bands played there, jazz, rock, new wave. 
actually the very first band I ever saw there was it was prom night nineteen eighty and um I had gotten kicked out of prom because I was trying to spike the principal and uh my history teacher caught me, so they kicked us out of prom. So me and my date and some other people went to Merlin's. I had never been there. They took me in. The Romantics were playing mm-hmm. in their red leathers and stuff, and that was pretty wild. Mm-hmm. So was it like all ages, or they just weren't carding people? <laughs> oh, um, well, but I no, I guess I was not 18 then. Mm-hmm. I can't remember how I got in. But uh, the drinking age was 18 then in Wisconsin. Uh, oh, okay. That helps. <laughs> yeah. Quite often we would just sneak in. Mm-hmm. You know. And uh, I guess we were no help for the the owner, a guy <laughs> named Serge Ludwith. You know, we caused a lot of problems. Looking back on it, I, I could have been more supportive of the scene, but we were just punks and we did what we felt like doing. You're right. So the Monads were like a hardcore band? Well, I guess our main influences were more like The Clash mm. and The Sex Pistols and then earlier stuff like the MC5 and uh, the New York Dolls and oh, wow. um, The Who even and stuff. Um, yeah. The Bloody Mattresses, man, they were more far out, I would say. Man. Yeah, they had, a, they had a place where they lived just down the street from Merlin's and um, Bucky, I think, lived there hung out there a lot and so did robin davies who were both in uh the original tar babies Mm -hmm. did you record anything uh we did um somebody got a hold of a four track cassette deck one of those things that you could uh you know like you could record in one direction flip the cassette over and record in the other direction and do some cool experimental stuff and We recorded some things on that. We never released a record, though. Mm -hmm. So long story story short, we just made some experimental tapes. Right. And anything between the Monads and Tar Babies, musically, for you? Uh, Yeah, I played with a couple of friends in the mid-'80s. I was starting to get into funk by that time, and listening to I Rediscovered Sly Stone and... uh, was into Parliament and Funkadelic and George Clinton. And uh, so we were kind of playing some funky stuff and things, but uh, it didn't last very long because Bucky asked me to jam with him and Dan. He said that uh, Robin didn't want to play. Or I can't remember exactly if he, I think he might have told me that later. He just asked if I'd like to come over and jam, and we jammed a few times. And then he invited me to, joined the Tar Babies to go to Europe. Mm. You did, so, uh, you... yeah, there was just that one band. Uh, I was actually going to college and trying to get my stuff together, as they say. Okay. So you don't know what happened with Ro- uh, Robin, like if he quit the band or, or and why? Oh, I kind of do. Um, I heard it from Bucky, and um, he said that, uh, as you know, um, that I'm having a senior moment. The guitar saxophone player that was on No Contest. Uh, oh, Tony. Tony Jarvis, right. Yeah. Boy, I knew I would have a senior moment or two <laughs> on this interview. <laughs> um, yeah, man, when Tony joined the band, they were just cooking, mm-hmm. man. Mm-hmm. And Robin loved it. And uh, 
Tony and Bucky were writing songs and um, they were just all real inspired. I remember I loved that album, No Contest. I, I still have that album, that CD with my favorite CDs, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and just as a little digression, then I'll answer your question. Um, I saw him at another club called OK's Corral and it was Tony and Bucky and Robin Davies and Dan Bittney playing drums and oh, they were just tearing the house down. Everybody, the whole place was bouncing up and down, people dancing and I was just so impressed by it. Like, so what happened was I guess some, Tony decided he wanted to leave. He wanted to go, I think, to Milwaukee, check out that scene, which he ended up doing. Then he ended up going to New York. And um, it bummed out Robin a lot. You know, he really missed Tony. Mm -hmm. And then um, when this European tour opportunity came about in 1988, um, Robin didn't feel like he could leave his job for a month. Um, He was working at... um, UW at a book binding thing, I guess. So between those two things, Tony Jarvis leaving and him not really wanting to go on this tour because he felt like he had to keep his job and support his family. Um, I, because I had been jamming with him a little bit and it went well, they asked me if I would go on the tour. And when that went well and we came back, um, it just became permanent. Okay, uh, tell me about that tour. What do you What do you remember from it? Was it like what kind of tour was it? Was it a uh, you know squats um, or were you playing? <laughs> what kind of venues were you playing? Oh, um, you know it, it was. I don't know. I wish I could remember the name of the company in. I believe it was not Amsterdam, but it was a Holland company that put it together and provided the equipment that we used and a driver and a a van to take us to the different clubs. Hmm. And uh, we played some, I wouldn't call them dives, but some smaller places and some larger places too in um, Holland, Austria, Switzerland, Germany, Denmark. I'm probably forgetting some, but... uh, yeah, it was really exciting. Almost uh, a different place every day. Had you done and, anything uh, like that previously? No. Oh, man. <laughs> um, you know, I played a few things with the Monads and maybe a couple of gigs with the band that I was in called the Brothers Duty. That was the name of the band I was in mm-hmm. just before the Tar Babies. Um, but no, that was pretty wild experience. I just tried to concentrate on the music and what Dan and Bucky were doing and uh, try to help us sound good and try not to think about all the people out there. <laughs> Any standout shows or like cool bands that you played with over there? Um, one standout show was the Pot Park Festival in Rotterdam, Holland. Uh, the crowd was estimated at 70,000 people. Whoa. <laughs> To be honest, I can't remember if that was the 88 tour or the tour that was in 89. Hmm. But, uh, yeah, that was really intimidating. No kidding. Going on, there's all these people out there. Um, 
and they weren't all watching us. There were two big stages and uh, 24-7 spies and fire hose were also playing. Wow. Um, but it was a, just a sea of people with women sitting on their boyfriend's shoulders, bopping up and down. And once again, I just tried to focus on the music and the sound and tune out all that. Otherwise, I probably would have just frozen. <laughs> <laughs> were those your first shows with the band, or did you at least you know, have a couple hometown shows before you went. Had a couple hometown shows first. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, what, where would you have been playing around Madison at that point? I think one of the first times, or maybe the first time I played with them was a place called the Wilmar Center, which is, um, it's on the near east side of Madison, and a lot of bands played there, like uh, the Crucifix, I remember, and uh, Sonic Youth played there, hmm. like around, you know, 86, 87, 88, that time frame, and we played a show there. Um, I think I saw Mech Mench play there. Uh, hmm. There was a Turner Turner Hall, too. Uh, saw Husker Du play there. Wow. Um and like Merlin's had closed by that time, but I think the hottest club was OK's Corral. Oh yeah, have you heard of that place? And probably it, a bar, <laughs> I'm assuming. Yeah, it was a bar next to another bar that were owned by a woman named Kay, and she had a guy named um, Tom Layton who started booking shows, and it pretty legendary in our legendary in our area mm -hmm. um people still talk about it and think about it because everybody who came through played there and uh it's a wonderful place yeah okay so um were any of these songs on honey bubble written when you joined the band do you know no i don't think so uh it's funny we actually toured to support no contest the the album that they made with Tony Jarvis and right. uh, Robin Davies. We played those songs and some earlier songs from Fried Milk and either, even some stuff before they um, got on SST. Okay. I think after we came back in the fall of 88, Bucky started writing songs and I started writing songs and quickly, uh, pretty quickly, I think we had enough for another album. Yeah, how, like how were the what was the songwriting process? I mean, it it just says all all songs by the Tar Babies. So, like, would it, uh, somebody would have a riff <laughs> and you would expand on it in a jam session, or or how did that work? Um, I think about half of them were really mostly Bucky songs, and about half of them were at least originated with me. Yeah, ideas that I had. Um. I think in both cases, though, um, everybody would contribute ideas. So it was a group effort. Um, one song that really sticks in my mind, uh, are you familiar with Joyride? I mm. believe it's the last song on side one of Honey Bubble. Yep, yep. I remember um, Bucky recorded a demo of that with just his vocals and guitar. Oh, yeah. And when I heard the introduction, this happens to me sometimes. I hear an instrument playing, and it's just like an instrument. That, and what I think is the downbeat is actually the upbeat. 
mm-hmm. and vice versa. Mm-hmm. And so I had it switched around in my mind for a while, and I couldn't break it out because <laughs> it was the first darn thing that I, you know, that I sort of learned. Right. Yep. And uh, but Dan, man, Dan is a a mofo. He well, always has been. It's funny that you mentioned. He, it. I, I have a specific question about about Dan actually for that song. So I, I'm going to oh, ask. Really? Yeah, I'm going to ask you some questions about the songs in a minute. I, I I'm. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm curious about um, where this was recorded because there's no studio listen listed, and there's two different um, engineers: yeah. Doug Col- Doug Colson and Steve Gasson. Yeah. Um, I noticed that too. Um, I just listened to the album for the first time in a long time the other day, mm-hmm. and I was reading the, the back of it. And I think six of the songs were recorded in Madison with Doug Olson, and they misprinted his name as Doug Colson uh-huh. on the back of the album. Uh-huh. And I think forever after that, it was a joke at Smart Studios where we recorded it. Uh-huh. Smart. Um, yep. It was kind of a joke. They would call him Mr. Colson. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, I saw a documentary, uh, The Smart Studio Story. Yep, yep. I don't know if you've seen that. I, I haven't. I've, I've heard about it. We've talked about it on the show before, yeah. Uh, yep. Oh, it's wonderful. Yeah. It's really well done. That's what my, uh, and, my uh, co-host Ryan says, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> on, uh, on that documentary, it actually says, I think... Um, Doug, and then in quotation marks, Coulson or something like that. And I was like, "Whoa, there's there's still calling him that." Oh, he's amazing. Uh, but Ryan's gonna love that. Yeah, six yeah. of the songs were recorded at Smart Studios um, in Madison, where the Smashing Pumpkins were recorded, and I think Nirvana was recorded there a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, by um, yeah. And then the other four songs were recorded by Steve Gasson in Chicago. Any idea how that came about? Um, Steve Gasson had lived in Madison until shortly before that. And then I think he was from Chicago and he moved back there. Hmm. And he had a job. He got a job at a studio there. And I think he invited us to go down and record some. And those things turned out really well. And all the horn songs on the album, I believe, were recorded in Chicago, and the other six were recorded in Madison. Okay. Uh, let's talk about these tracks for a minute. So, like, right off the bat, definitely, you know, Robin, I don't think, was, uh, you know, playing bass the same way you were, and it, I think it had a huge impact on the sound of the band. Yeah, when I listen to it now, I'm like, man, I shouldn't have been so slap happy all the time. I'm just like filling every possible space with notes. Well, those uh, were the days. If I could do it over, I would have approached it a lot more like uh, in a supportive role, holding down the bottom. But at the time, I was, I had learned slap techniques, and um, I, most of the th- songs, I think, have at least some slapping stuff on it. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean... I'm not sure how you feel about this, but you know, I'm going to, I'm going to bring up that band that I'm, I'm sure came up. Uh, that's, uh-huh. that's the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Um, did, did, yeah. you, did you get that a lot? Um, you know, not from, um, audience members and fans and stuff, but I think the people in the press and 
if we were in, being interviewed on like a radio station, I think that would come up. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that I think that was an influence. Um, after punk and hardcore, I think a lot of people were kind of getting into dance music again in the middle eighties, later eighties. I certainly was. I think even before I heard the Red Hot Chili Peppers, like I said, I was I kind of rediscovered Sly and the Family Stone, and I, I really, I think it's because I heard that music when I was a child, mm-hmm. and it was you know still in the back of my head. And then uh, in the mid '80s, I had a drug problem in the early '80s to get away from hard drugs. I just started practicing the bass a lot, mm. replacing the drugs with bass. And uh, I got a book about with slap techniques in it, and I, I learned the whole book. And mm-hmm. that was probably in the mid-'80s before the Tar Babies. And uh, by 1988, 89, when I was playing with them at first, uh, I, I felt like using it. And Bucky's songs, like the first one, I think he was, Joyride, he showed me, and it really lent itself to that technique. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's how that came about. Okay. Uh, so this first song, Rockhead, that um, got used in a Santa Cruz skateboard video, Speed Freaks. What do you, did you, I'm sure that oh. helped the band. Yeah. I think Bucky told me about that. Um, yeah. Bucky came out of the skateboard scene. He'd always been a skateboarder and his friends are skateboarders. Um, I wasn't, but uh, I remember them telling me about that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think that was helpful. Yeah. And I can understand why it seemed like the kind of song that would energize somebody who was skating. Totally. <laughs> well, I would say that, you know, when I put the album on, yeah. like I say I hadn't listened to it for maybe 20 years or something. Uh, not sure why, but uh, when I played it the other day, I was like, wow, you know, it just kind of jumps out. do 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 from yeah. the get-go of that Rockhead song. <laughs> I was like, wow! And then the band kicks in, and it's like, you know, Bucky used to say this, it's like having your head inside of a popcorn popper. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, wow! Pretty cool. Yeah. It kind of wore on me after a while, you know, by the, you know, halfway through, I was like, man, I should have just held down the bottom more often and not filled up so much space. Yeah, I think it works. God, as... As I listened to it, I was like, Dan is just on fire. He's like <laughs> the glue that's holding everything together because he's rock solid. His fills are in all the right places. Yeah. Great energy. And yeah. Bucky's songwriting is so good, so original. And uh, his lyrics are really good. I don't know if people talk about his lyrics that much, but I've always thought he was a great lyrics writer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. So, good point. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, it, I I enjoyed it. <laughs> okay, the next song is Rhino A Go Go. And this one <laughs> I, I found very live sound. Like it you know, it sounds like you're almost playing live in the studio, like just as a band. Yeah, I think we always did drums, bass, guitar. Yeah. We always played like that. We didn't build up too much stuff. Although um you know there we would overdub something. I think like the vocals would be overdubbed later. I, I, a lot I'm, of it was live. I'm pretty sure I hear a Quika maybe overdubbed on this one. 
at the beginning, though. Yeah. Wooka, wooka, wooka. Yeah. You know what that is? I was at a McDonald's, and I had a milkshake. <laughs> and we came into the studio, and I had the straw in the lid, and I was moving the straw back and forth, and it was making that sound. And if it, get, if it got a little too dry, I'd get a little bit more of the milkshake out of it, but not too much, you know? Yeah. Uh, I love that. That's what that is, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Uh, who's doing the high Prince vocals? The where you gonna go part? Oh, I'm not sure. I think maybe Bucky. Hmm. Bucky has a good falsetto voice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Or maybe uh, maybe all three of us were doing that. Yeah, it sounds like more than one person, right? Yeah, it does. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure. I can't remember that exactly. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, the next one's Lab Test Animal. Un- it sounds like an uh, uncredited B3 organ to me. Oh, yeah. Who the heck? I would have to listen to that again. I, I couldn't tell you who that is. Mm-hmm. But that was a track that I was really moved by when I listened to it again the other day. Bucky's lyrics. Yep. Um... People say, you know, something about my life is tragic. Some people call me magic. And just the down and out description of this woman. I asked Bucky about it um, later. We got together over lunch the other day. And uh, he said he met this girl um, late one night. She was walking back from the Coliseum where the big rock shows were in Madison. Mm-hmm. Like I saw queen there and kiss there back in the 70s and right she was walking back from some like heavy metal show maybe it was judas priest or something and uh, um she was obviously really wasted and bucky was talking with her and that's where he got the idea for the song things that she was saying uh-huh. and uh she didn't have a place to stay and he he let her sleep in his car or his the the dura van that we used to tour around in mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, that's for that. And I think the actual music, the chords and the bass line were something that I brought. I think that might have been sort of a rare song where it was really kind of 50-50. Sort of the music was mine and the lyrics and melody were Bucky's. Mm-hmm. But probably not totally. Something like that. Tony on sax. So he was obviously still kicking yeah. around to some degree. Yeah, he came back, um, and I think we recorded that in Chicago, because that was a horn song. Um, And I think Tony and the other horn players, and maybe just Tony, are the ones that came up with those lines, those horn arrangements. Mm -hmm. Tony is a great musician, still is. I think he lives in New York now. You talked with him, right? Yeah, we did. No contest. Yep, he had very, very fond memories of his time in Tar Babies. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. Yeah. The next one is ninety pounds. Seems like uh, like lots of guitar overdubs on some of these tracks. Yeah. Yep. Fuck, you went to town on that one. Um, (laughs) I wrote the song ostensibly, but um, he added a lot of it kind of metalish type guitar sound sometimes mm-hmm. and uh i i think a kind of cool thing about it was um 
uh, the refrain between verses and chorus thing was in what is it seven eight time? Something like that. I remember Dan really liking that. Oh yeah, something in a different time signature. Yeah. I, I feel like, you know, listening to stuff like this, the big difference between Tar Babies and likely some of the stuff that you got compared to is there's a real discordant quality to both the vocals and much of the guitar. Do you do you find that? Yeah. Yeah. You know, at the time, I, I thought I had... Sometimes I would have trouble understanding what Bucky was up to harmonically, mm-hmm. but he's got really big ears. And he doesn't want to, he, he likes, you know, all sorts of traditional stuff and conventional stuff. But when he makes his own music, I think he wants to do something that hasn't been done before. Mm-hmm. Yep. So he's, he's really stretching the boundaries. When I first heard him, like, I remember when I first heard Fried Milk, I thought, uh, God, his guitar sound is really cool. And then I heard No Contest. And I remember at the time I was listening to stuff like James Blood Almer. Right. And I know they're not exactly the same by any means, but I told Bucky, I was like, man, I really like your guitar sound. It it reminds me kind of of James Blood Almer. And, you know, that he definitely played with dissonance. So uh, I think that's a lot of where that, um, yeah. I hear that too. Yeah. Uh, the next one is bimbos and idiots. Uh, so who's that that interjects with the someone who's got as much to prove as you do line? Possibly uh, Bonnie Gallagher or Jennifer Hawkins? I think that was Jennifer. Yeah, she was a friend and uh, she came in the studio with another friend and they did some backup vocals and she did that refrain there too. Okay. She still um, lives in Madison, and uh, Bucky and she and some other folks put together a girl group, uh-huh. and they let they let Bucky play with them too. You know, even though he's a guy, and right. uh, they're doing old like I don't know Martha and the Vandellas or the Shrells and stuff. And oh, yeah. Bucky, you know, like I say, he's got big ears, and he loves that kind of stuff too. And mm-hmm. so they're. They still um, are friends and they've gotten together for some musical things. But yeah, that's Jennifer that does that. Okay. Uh, flipping it over, we get to Joyride. So this was, this was my my notes for that song. I said, you, you and Dan are especially locked in on this song. And I can definitely see Dan's playing get more impressive on each album. It must have been like a real treat for you to, to be able to play with someone of, of Dan's caliber. Yeah, you know, in the early days, like 81, 82, like when the Bloody Mattresses, Bucky was in the Bloody Mattresses, and Dan was playing guitar, I believe, in Mech Mench. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've heard of that. Band, yep, but, yep. Uh, we've talked about them before. Oh, cool. Yep. Oh, great. You know, we were all, at least I thought we were all just like kids who were just learning, trying to learn how to play their instruments and didn't know what the hell we were doing most of the time, but we were trying. Dan was the first guy. He sat at a drum set, I remember, in the very early 80s. 
and it, it was at some kind of show. He sat at the drums and he just started playing, and he was just so much of a virtuoso already. I was like, wow. He was the first guy in our peer groups that I thought could really effing play, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, he he was just always an inspiration. And when I got to play with him in the Tar Babies, it was awesome. Yeah. Okay, uh, Yama Yama Man. I when I hear <laughs> this one, I feel like it's possibly one of the you know the hits off the record that people really liked. When we went to Europe in 1989, I think it was in the top ten in one of the countries we went to. Oh, really? At least on, <laughs> maybe on a college radio station or something. I can't remember, but yeah, it's pretty accessible. Mm-hmm. And a, a funny thing about that rec or that song is, um, I wrote the the verse and I wrote the chorus, but the part that goes um, in the chorus where it's when I'm dreaming, you take my hand and you let me understand. That's actually Dan. Oh, he would rarely sing, but he had the best voice of any of us, <laughs> and uh, he was telling us when we were recording the song, he's like, you know, that chorus is just screaming for a part like this. And he sang it. And it was like a counter melody to this other thing that I had, we had going. And it was actually better, (laughs) cooler, nicer than what I was had for the chorus. And, uh, I just convinced him to do it himself. So that's Dan. Hmm. Uh, and is only singing on the album. He's singing that chorus on there that I think really That's helps cool. to make that song. Yeah. Uh, the next one is Waking. So there's Jim Hansen on trumpet. Yeah. I think that was recorded in Chicago, and I, I think um, Tony was there for that too. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, the trumpet sounds really nice at the end, I think. Uh, I think it's at the end where there's like sort of a miles type meandering solo. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's at the beginning. God, my mind plays tricks on me sometimes. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, that was a song that I wrote and I, I was kind of trying to do a fly stone type thing for the verse and a sort of hard rock thing for the chorus. When I listen to it now, I'm like, ooh, you know, I can, <laughs> I can hear what I was going for, but yeah, I didn't quite have the songwriting chops to get it over. Who's Jim Hansen? Was he someone you knew, or he was somebody they brought in from, like, on the studio side? You know, I want to say that he was um, one of the well-known musicians in the Madison scene, mm-hmm. Name rings a bell. I believe there was a musical family, the Hanson, hmm. in Madison. I'm not sure, but I think he was part of that. And since Tony was so, you know, locked into the Madison jazz, funk, music scene, I think maybe they were friends and they decided to come to Chicago together. Uh, maybe Bucky actually knew him and invited him over. Okay. Uh, reprise, reprise. Bucky's almost, he's almost rapping on that one. Yeah. Isn't that cool? Yeah. It works. It <laughs> works really well. I went to Bucky the other day. <laughs> he's like, oh, there's some, cr-. when I listen to the album, there's some cringy moments. 
and he thought that was kind of cringy, and I was like, no, man, that, that is so cool. Like, uh, the beginning where he's like, walking tall, feeling my power, be whatever I please, you know? Yeah, it's, yeah, it is it's kind great. Of rap like, and then in the middle, there's some rapid fire rapping uh, about just clean for sanity and unity and racial mm-hmm. equality and stuff. Uh, maybe Bucky cringes because he thinks it was too preachy, but mm. I really like it. I think it's just a guy who's telling, you know, speaking his truth and just doing the best he can in society with all these different things pulling against each other. Yeah. Yeah. I love that song. Yeah, it's a good and one. And like the music that he wrote for it really goes with it. Just, um, it sounds like somebody, you know, walking down the street, walking tall, feeling their power. Yep. And then we close it out with just a total slap fest on your end. Spate <laughs> and Ashbury. Yeah, isn't that crazy? Yeah. <laughs> What's I didn't the... remember exactly how that came about, but um, I asked Bucky about it later. I thought maybe we were just jamming in the studio, and he and Doug Olson put it together, kind of Frankensteined it. Mm-hmm. Um, but Bucky reminded me that actually we had these fragments of songs, like four or five different things. Yeah, I can. That makes sense. Yeah. Bucky, I think, had the idea, along with Doug, I believe, to, um, you know, you guys just on this, jam on that, jam on this, jam on that. And then um, from the beginning, the plan was that they would pick out their favorite parts and stitch it together into something and lay over the top of that, that uh, phone message thing from a friend of ours. Yeah. Uh, cash. Cash flag, I think he calls himself. Okay, yeah. I was going to say it sounds like an answering machine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Mike Clark, a friend of ours, who um, I think he moved out to San Francisco before that album was made. And I think he left that message on a sound man that we worked with a lot, uh, um, Bob Wasserman. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, he left that message on his answering machine and Bob played it for Bucky and Bucky's like, well, that's pretty cool. And so they, they put that on the top of it and timed it so that what Mike says on the answering machine kind of goes along with the different grooves and transitions in the, in the music that they put together. Another interesting thing about that is, you know, after that actually at the time was my favorite thing on the album. Mm-hmm. And we ended up um, learning it off of the album and playing it at shows. <laughs> so we kind of learned our own song right. <laughs> um, off the record to play live. Because it's kind of a studio creation. Yeah. That's cool. Um, we have to talk about this amazing cover art. So do you have it in front of you? Can you tell me who these people are? I, I don't recognize any of them. So I'm assuming these are not <laughs> like famous people like Sergeant Peppers or something. These are more like uh, friends of the band and stuff. Yeah. I remember, um, Bucky organized a photo shoot off of state street, just up the street a bit from where Merlin's used to be. And, uh, he invited everybody he knew, all his friends, um, we came up there and a bunch of photos were taken and, uh, 
apparently none of them were especially cool individually, but he thought he could maybe make a collage with them that would be cool. Oh, yeah. I remember him getting an exacto knife and cutting out these pictures and putting them together. Um, it kind of reminded me of the back cover of Fly Stone, There's a Riot Going On, mm-hmm. with all the different photos that are on there, the inside gatefold cover of um, Marvin Gaye's uh, What's Going On, I think has a similar sort of collage thing, but mm-hmm. I don't think Bucky was thinking about that at all. He just made a collage of all these people, and um, it occurred to me later, like, Honey Bubble is kind of a good image or metaphor for, like, this uh, social group, you know, like, I live in this... You know, like my peers, my my friends in Madison, we kind of live in this honey bubble where everybody mm-hmm. likes each other and all mm-hmm. part of the scene. But when I asked Bucky about that the other day, he's like, no, I was just sitting with my girlfriend and there was a bubble in the little honey bear bottle. And <laughs> that's where the album's name came from. There wasn't any more to it than that. <laughs> I'm like, okay. But, uh... Yeah, it, you can see Bucky in the middle with the American flag over the, his shoulders, right? Oh, okay. Where are you? Um, do you see the guy on the left that's got the baseball cap off, you know, to one side? Yep, I see him. That's me. Oh, okay. I think I'm also in back of the crowd in yep. another place. If you go, um, do you see on Bucky's left? That girl with the Robert E. Lee general. <laughs> She's <laughs> looking off to the side. She, she that's Jennifer. Okay. The, the woman that I was telling you about that thing back up. Yep. To Bucky's left. Sorry. Yep. Yeah. Bucky's yep. left. Uh, that's Jennifer. Yep. And then on Jennifer's left, the guy that's wearing kind of a little cap, um, not really a beret, but just not a skull cap. Yep. The black t-shirt, the black, that's Dan Bidden. Okay, yep. That's then cool. Then there's just all sorts of other people there, people I knew back then, close friends, some living, some passed away, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a, basically the Madison scene at the time in 1989. That's a great cover. Oh, who's on the back cover? I think his name is Jimmy. And uh, I think Bucky's original idea for the album cover was Jimmy running naked with the um, American flag. But uh, I guess he just didn't like that idea in the end, so he just put it on the back cover. Mm-hmm. And I think that's Jimmy's face on his crotch. I'm not sure. <laughs> I don't think he's built that way. <laughs> okay, and you, you said that you did some more touring after this yeah we went to man we went to the east coast uh, new york and boston all sorts of places west coast three times to la mm-hmm. oh man i got to go um we played at a place in hollywood i remember i think it was 89 and i got to meet mike watt and chuck Bukowski, and that was really nice Mm-hmm. Went up to Seattle and 
played up there and we, we went to Europe again a second time and that time we were able to sort of support Honey Bubble because mm-hmm. I had been out by then. Yep. You changed the band's name briefly for a while? Tell me about that. Yeah. Um, you know, now it seems like, yeah, who would call themselves the Tar Babies? Right. You know, you're just asking for trouble then. I remember one gig that we played up at McAllister College in St. Paul. Uh, a young lady, a, a black young lady, came up to me and was like, where do you come off calling yourselves the Tar Babies? It was like doing sound check. Right. And I was like, well, you know, it comes from Songs of the South, Uncle Remus, Br'er Rabbit, Br'er Fox, and the Tar Babies. It kind of represents, but she cut me off and she's like, that's just a bunch of bullshit. Right. What if I started a band called the White Ass Honky Motherfuckers? What do you think <laughs> about that? And I was like, well, uh, kind of catchy, but maybe a little long. And she went, ah, and she turned on her heel and stopped away. I think there were a lot of people that did not appreciate, even though there were blacks and whites in the band over the years, I don't think they appreciated these, these white guys calling themselves the Tar Babies. So we always got it done. And uh, I think it was Dan who thought uh, he was looking at his face and creeping one day and he was even called fatty ester acid. And he's like, how about if we just call ourselves fatty acid ester? So we did that for a while. <laughs> at some point you split up, and but then you reformed yeah. for another album in 91. I don't think there was any splitting up before that album. Um, just added some more players, permanent horn players, and a conga player. Mm-hmm. Um, Chris O'Dowd joined on saxophone. Um, another guy played saxophone. I wish I could remember his name. It's kind of sticking my brain. And Marcel Colbert joined. Yeah. It just became a bigger band. And we recorded that album on another label. It's a good one. Yeah, yeah you know that. I think that's some of Bucky's best writing of all on that album. It's too bad it wasn't on SST. That would have been great. Yeah, it sounds but, um, it sounds very focused to me. Yeah, yeah. Bucky wrote almost all the songs, and he was just it was a very prolific period for him. Mm-hmm. And. uh I want to, maybe my favorite song of his of all time is um, Death of a Star that's on that. Mm-hmm. Starts out with, this, it's kind of three songs, one after the other, segueing one into the other. First, Out in Space, which is this real atmospheric thing. And then it goes into this really rocking Death of a Star song. And then kind of as like a, the pre's of his hardcore days, it goes into this thing called Oreos. It's just those three songs, especially Death of a Star, I just think are as good as anything anybody's ever written or recorded. I suppose I'm biased. What'd you end up doing post Tar Babies? Did you keep playing in bands? Um, no, I, uh, 
I kind of had this like nervous breakdown or something around 91, 92. And there was an opportunity to go on another European tour, but I just did not feel up to it. Mm-hmm. I, I needed to get my act together. Maybe I was having like a midlife crisis or something. I'm not sure, but uh, mm-hmm. well, I suppose that was 92. Um, Bucky got a bass player from another band to go on that tour and, Apparently the tour did not go very well, hmm. and uh, they decided to break up after that. I see. I ended up, um, I went back to college and got a teaching credential, and I started teaching high school English. Dan went to Chicago, and that's when he and some other friends started a Tortoise, right. that band. And Bucky went to San Francisco and uh, started a band called uh, the Cold Cock Trio. They were pretty hot for a while. So, yeah, we just kind of went to the floor. And any of your students ever show up with a Tar Babies record? Um, Yeah. I think a couple had at least heard them um, online, maybe. Right, yeah. On YouTube or you know, streaming or something. I don't know if anybody actually got a hold of a hard copy right. of my students. But yeah, yeah. I used to like to bring instruments to school, and we actually had a room that was kind of a playroom, and we were jamming in there. I got a drum set, put it in there, and other instruments, and my students and I would jam when we got the chance. And you said that you had lunch with Bucky the other day, so that's awesome that you you know you still keep in touch. Yeah, we're we're lifelong friends. Yeah, that's great to hear. Steve, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. You bet, Brent. Uh, I hope uh, this was interesting. Cool, so cool to have Steve on. I remember back in the day, he and he's mentioning you know how you would buy like a magazine or an instructional video and like learn a style, you know, and he, he picked up kind of the, the slapping and popping on the bass. I remember those videos totally, totally. Now you just go into YouTube and there's a million people who can teach you how to do everything, you know, like it's, uh, it's so much more accessible now. It's just wild, just wild. And I remember like going to the music store and, uh, you know, cause you'd go in there, even if you had a bass, you'd go in there and you dream about these better bases that you could have. And every once in a while you'd see someone or one of the clerks pick up and do some slapping and popping in the, the late eighties, early nineties. You'd be like, Oh man, if only I could learn how to do that, I would be so amazing. Definitely loved though, the mention of smart studios, as you noted, Brent, of course, I love that documentary, the smart studio story. People should check that out where there are members of Tar Babies in that uh, documentary. Great footage and great interviews with the Tar Babies. And I should mention too, people talk about the Tar Babies, about how they were such a killer band. Butch Vig kind of calls them like groovy punk. Even uh, Billy Corgan gives them a shout out and the documentary and calls them Chili Peppers before they were Chili Peppers, yep. which is uh, not wrong. Yep. Um, but I'll also, in addition to recommending that documentary, I got to recommend the two comps that came out uh, after that, there's a, they're both called American Noise, American Noise Volume 1, Volume 2. And on American Noise Volume 1, 
there is a Tar Babies track on here, Wasted Words, but then also like the Appliances, Killdozer, the Kreutzin, uh, Spooner, of course, Butch Vig's band. That's kind of like the, the first one. Then the second one kind of branches out a bit more. It's got tracks by Tad, Cherubs, Laughing Hyenas, The Fluid, Urge Overkill. Just amazing, amazing bands that went through that studio. And uh, Tar Babies were one of them, man. Yeah, so a few things I uh, came away with from the interview. Um, uh, the Monads, his... Yeah, pre Tar Babies band. I could not find anything, any info at all on the Monads. Uh, these clubs he mentions, Merlin's, and then OK's Corral. So definitely heard of OK's, mm-hmm. uh, and that's spelled O apostrophe C A Y Z Corral. Uh, it was a, a country and western bar in the seventies, and uh, it went by a different name, but changed owners and became OKs in nineteen eighty after owner Catherine K. Millard. It kind of had a reputation as being the CBGBs of the Midwest. Uh, it unfortunately burned down on New Year's Day two thousand one. I read a bunch of articles on it, and it sounds like one of those just super special places. Yeah, um, really reminded me of our hometown club. To be honest. Mm. Just, uh, just, very, a cor- just a cornerstone of a scene, yeah. hey? Yeah. I, I'm, the bands that have played there, like the list of bands is just insane. Like, just go on the Wikipedia page and just read, read the list of bands. It'll blow your mind. Just a who's who, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, and I should add, it was leased to Kathy Demers from 94 to 2001. Uh, so she would have probably been booking it at that time. Um, but yeah, and then uh, Steve also hit me to another comp, Ryan. Uh, this uh, it came out of Madison, and it was all recorded live at OKs in '89. It's called Mad Slab. That's the name of it. Oh wow! Uh, here's the bands that are on it, and some of these bands, the only thing they ever released was on this Mad Slab, at least as far as I could find. Yeah, so it's got bands like the Tar Babies, a few of the bands that you that came up in the, in the documentary too, like poop shovel. Oh yeah. Uh, the gomers, but then there's bands like Pat, the blowfish, the burning Ernie's Scorpio <laughs> rising, the funeral party cattle prod. Yeah. Recorded live at okays. Um, so the, the smart studios doc, I honestly forgot it existed. I, I know you've spieled about it before, uh, but until Steve mentioned it, I kind of forgot all about it. So I oh, bought yeah. I bought it on Vimeo for $6 Canadian. Oh yeah. Uh, just loved it. Everyone should check it out. It's by Wendy Schneider. Um, as Ryan mentioned, Dan and Bucky are both in it. Yeah. Uh, there was some really cool Tar Babies footage. Um, they were the first band to record at Smart's first location, actually, Tar Babies. They, they say the glue is still drying from the egg cartons on the wall when they recorded, I can't remember what it was, Face the Music yeah. uh, or uh, the, the other early EP. Um, I love Killdozer, so all of the interviews and the footage of them just rules so hard. Yeah, uh, They need their own documentary, actually, Killdozer. Mm. Uh, it's really a, an incredible film. I just loved it. I paused it like a hundred times, you know, to look up bands. Oh, yeah. The yeah. second they mention it, oh man, I got to hear that song by Killdozer off yeah. 12, 12 point buck or oh, whatever, yeah. right? Yeah, for sure. How many times has that studio come up too on the show, like on Dinosaur Jr. episodes or whatever, right? Yeah. Just amazing. Yeah. So, you know, and 
one thing that um, I've had this conversation with a number of guests now, and I, I always really like having it. Steve, Steve and I talked for a while after the interview. Um, you know, he wants, you know, some of these SST guys, they want to know who all we've talked to and, and what they have to say, mm. because, you know, he's super proud to be a part of the SST story and, and he should be. Yeah. And I, I find it's that way with these kind of bands that just had, you know, no expectations from the label. They're just happy to be a part of it. And that the label put their stuff, like somehow their stuff got out there because the label and it might not have gotten out there without SST, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I always like talking to people that are, you know, have positive memories about their time on SST. I understand why people, some, certain people don't, I'm not criticizing people who are, have negative things to say, but you know, um, I, you know, there's a lot of bitterness towards SST. And again, I understand why that is. And people are entitled to feel that way. Um, but Steve doesn't. So it's, you know, I guess it's kind of refreshing or something. Yeah. Well, it's nice to balance out the narrative is what I would say. Yeah. Okay. So this was, the recording was split, um, between two studios. Six of the songs were recorded at Smart by Doug Olson, AKA Mr. Colson. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Like he gets called Mr. Colson in that documentary and it's all because of a typo on this Tar Babies record. Yeah. Um, I mean, the guy is, his credits are just insane. Like he helped engineer eight way Santa. Yeah. And like cosmic psychos, blokes you can trust dwarves. Thank heaven. Um, L seven bricks are heavy. Uh, a, a lot of those along with Butch Vig, of course. Uh, and then, uh, the other four songs were recorded with Steve Gasson. Um, couldn't really find too much about Steve or what engineer, uh, what studio he would have engineered these at. Mm-hmm. Um, looks like he didn't really, wasn't really a, an engineer for too long. He was the band's tour tech though, like their front of house guy. Um, he's also credited with some of the tracks on the follow-up Tar Babies album, Death Trip from 1992. Um, and they credit Mr. Colson with about three quarters of, of that record as well. So very similar to, to how they recorded this one. That album came out on CD and LP on a very short lived Chicago label. Like it was basically around for about a year, 1991 to 1992 ish, the label, mm-hmm. uh, that label's called Sonic Noise. And a, a cool thing about, I noticed about them is they released this album by Minneapolis art rock band, Things That Fall Down, which is another another one on my list that I, of things I'm trying to find. Uh, engineered in Steve's basement is what it says, and that's Steve Albini, and featuring a pre-Westies Bobby Jocelyn on drums. Whoa, So it's that's on the cool. tree. <laughs> yeah. That's cool. <laughs> Things, wow. that, things that fall down. I'm pretty sure he talked about this band when we had yeah. him on. They're like an art rock band, like Talking Heads or something like that. Mm. Anyways, this Death Trip album um, by Tar Babies is really good. I agree with Steve that it's kind of too bad it didn't come out on SST. It's not dissimilar to the stuff we've already heard, especially this album. It's kind of a, an outgrowth of this one. Uh, but to me, it seems like really dialed in and more focused and might also be... Uh, the best recorded Tar Babies album. Uh, it's Dan, Bucky, and Steve with kind of an expanded lineup. They have uh, a conga players, uh, two sax players, and a second guitarist, Bobby Venue. So uh, that's something for people to check out if they did, want more Tar Babies. Did you say a conga player or a conga player? Which is it? Uh, whichever you prefer. 
did you say conga because it's come on everybody did you do that conga is that why you did that is that why you say it that way <laughs> like you're doing miami sound machine pronunciation that's is that right. right yeah okay okay keep going and he also played a schrechter guitar <laughs> <laughs> What do you got, smartass? Well, we know this from uh, past episodes on Tar Babies. There just is not that much out there written about them. Uh, I did go through and try to find some uh, new info, and I pulled this one off my... This is off my shelf that I still need to read this book, Brick Through the Window, An Oral History of Punk Rock, New Wave, and Noise in Milwaukee, 64 to 84 this book is um let me see it's way over 500 pages but there's really not that much mention of tar babies in here unfortunately nothing really noteworthy um the best spiel that i found surprisingly uh, because you know i was kind of redoing the stacks at my house here and i was just flipping through everything to find anything on tar babies and i don't think we've mentioned this it comes out of the husker do book oh by Andrew Earls. Now it's going way, way, way back in the Tar Babies world. It's uh, it's not this era of Tar Babies, but I think this might be our last time with the Tar Babies, or at least on an LP version, right? Like, are we going to have any more Tar Babies? Mm. I don't, I don't if think so. If we do, maybe on a comp, but on I don't a know. Comp. Yeah, yeah, so I've, I'm like, you know, I better get at this while the getting's good. So anyways, I found a couple of spiels. They're pretty short, but on the Tar Babies from this book, Husker Du, the story of the noise pop pioneers who launched modern rock written by Andrew Earls. So here's one, um, again, going way, way back. It says here, um, they're just talking about Husker on the road. Okay. And both of these spiels, here we go. Madison, Dayton, Milwaukee, Indianapolis, and Detroit, along with Chicago provided good weekend out of towners given the twin cities, central location and Bob's school schedule quote, And in Madison, we met Robin Davies, who became our good friend. His band, the Tar Babies, became our allies there. His brother was in Mecht Mensch. So there's one spiel. (laughs) Like, there's not not many, right? Um, And then here's another spiel out of Andrew Earle's book. Yeah, in the in the Smart Studios documentary, it's either Dan or or um, Bucky kind of credit Robin as being the guy who got shit done. Like he he would find new places for bands to play, and back in the day when you know, clubs weren't booking bands and stuff. Yeah, exactly. And here's another spiel out of this book, again, going way, way back. And it's talking about the comp on Reflex, Barefoot and Pregnant. This comp, of course, has got Loud Fast Rules. That's the precursor to uh, Soul Asylum, Husker Du, The Replacements, Man-Sized Action, and also five tracks by Mecht Mensch. And here's what it says. It's just describing the various tracks on this comp. Elsewhere, Mecht Mensch's five slots illustrate Reflex's early motive to work with the Madison, Wisconsin band. Friends since 1980, when the Huskers started booking short weekend tours through the region, carrying with them the promise of Minneapolis gigs for Madison bands. Mecht Mensch was allegedly a knockout live. Quote, those kids would part your hair in the middle. It was pretty astonishing, remembers Katzman. The singer had this insane voice, and he was just this little stick of a kid. The biggest mistake by Reflex was to not make a full length with that band. 
Mechtmensch, that is. The sparse Mechtmensch discography ended up on Bone Air Records, Madison's version of Reflex. Bone Air was founded by Bucky Pope of the Tar Babies and survived to release the band's pre-SST material along with the 1984 debut LP by notorious noise rock wiseacres Killdozer. Hmm. Yeah, so Jeremy Davies was the singer, right? Yep. Mac Mensch and Dan Bittney was actually the guitar player, not the drummer. Ah, and here's one last spiel I have, just basically a review of this record, Honey Bubble, from Richard Foss at All Music. The last album from the Tar Babies on SST is their funkiest and in many ways their most successful, though the vocals are still a bit weak and lacking in personality. Indeed, the two best cuts are the ones with guest vocalists of a sort. Spade and Ashbury is really an instrumental that happens to be overlaid with recordings of rambling, surreal answering machine messages. Oddly, the mix works perfectly with the strange stream of consciousness monologue a mad counterpoint to the sizzling funk rumbling beneath it. Bimbos and Idiots is a non-politically correct rant that features a female guest vocal and it comes off livelier than most of the other cuts. Elsewhere, the vocals on Honey Bubble are lacking in character. Not bad, just not memorable. This is unfortunate because most of the music here is first-rate mixing punk, funk, and experimentalism to great effect. Funky slap bass and strident discordant guitars mix much better than might be expected. And though the horn section never really cuts loose, there are some moments when they add a soulful or jazzy tone to a punkish riff. This band had some very good ideas and weren't afraid to experiment. And even if they didn't always pull everything off, their albums still sizzle. Yeah, well, this one sizzles. So, so this album was released on LP, CD, and cassette. Somewhere around June of 1989, May or June. Uh, and good news, Ryan, if you don't own a copy, it's the only Tar Babies album on streaming sites. So everyone out there can listen along. Wow. Well, they should check it out for sure. And that's a shame that the other ones aren't available. Yeah. Let's get into it. History Lesson Part 2. All right. Track 1, Side 1 is called Rockhead. Right out of the gate with some heavy funk rock. This would have fit perfectly, like this band doing this would have fit perfectly with on a bill with Fishbone or 24-7 Spies. Like there were a lot of bands doing stuff like this in the mm -hmm. late 80s, Yep. especially after the success of the Chili Peppers. But uh, like you mentioned and like Billy Corgan says in the Smart Doc, the Tar Babies were the Chili Peppers before the Chili Peppers. Yeah. Who's counting, I guess? Yeah, well, like you said, it doesn't really matter anyways. It's not like, you know, flea trademarked slap bass or something like that. No, no. This, I will say though, I mean, again, I did a bit of a funky, a funky deep dive this week and, and was reliving like, you know, when I was really, really into the stuff, when I was kind of starting out as a bass player and I'm talking like, this is my early teens, right? The style of slap bass is so killer on this record. It's very reminiscent, though, of, like, I would say the uplift mofo party Flea. Mm -hmm. if, if you think about that, because Flea hardly even slaps and pops anymore, right? He hardly does that anymore. This is, like, that era. And uh, I got to tell you, man, 
some of the tr- some of the the moves on this record top flea like by a by a long by a long shot yeah well i think that's partially just being a young man you know oh yeah the the next track like rhino a gogo um i know how hard it is to play like this man the line on this song rhino a gogo this is a top shelf funky slap bass line it's insane yeah um, and all these songs, by the way, are just credited to the band, but it sounds like, you know, Bucky had a big part in the songwriting and uh, also Steve wrote some too. Um, this one is the one that featured Steve Lewis on McDonald's Cup Straw. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this one was a highlight for me. Uh, I like the rapid, rapid fire verses and then the way it kind of transitions into that super smooth chorus. What's the instrument that you... Uh... You said it was, but it's not. It's the straw. Like it, you, it's like an Erto Moriera type of percussive. Well, I instrument. call it a cuica, but is that the one that goes? <laughs> yeah, like live evil or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then there's a wild Henry Kaiser esque solo in this one too. The guitar licks on this are like, you know, you can tell like during kind of the the verse and chorus most of the time. It's kind of just like, you know, funky, chunky riffs. But then every now and then when it lets loose, it's pretty crazy. It really lets loose, yeah. Uh, track three is Lab Test Animal. This is the song Bucky wrote about the metal chick he met after some concert. And it's told from her perspective. Um, Steve sent me the lyric sheet, by the way, that it says on the back you can send away for. Um, sometimes I start crying crying for no reason. I think I lost my mind when I was 14. There was a man who told me that he loved me, but my daddy found out he raped me. He wouldn't let us marry. Now all I have are the scars and that memory. Yeesh. Yeah. Lots going on in this one. Got some horns. The horns. Uh, some sort of sample of Bucky uh, right before the sax solo and uh, what sounds like a Hammond B3 organ. Yeah, I, I would say it's the organ, yep. Uh, the next one was another highlight for me, 90 Pounds. This one made me think of Living Color every time I heard it, which is cool because I love Living Color. They, they just have a totally unique unique sound. And I can't remember who wrote that that uh, review that you read, but, um, you know, Bucky's vocals are a big part of the unique sound. I'm sure they got a lot of shit, like people telling them, you were, you're a good band if only you had a singer that could carry a tune or whatever. Mm-hmm. But he can sing. Um, like, I think this is intentionally atonal, and it's cool. It, Like, I, I like it. It gives them, a, the band, a unique quality. Yeah, for me, I mean, the Living Color reference makes a lot of sense because it's a really heavy track, too. Like, it's not it's not as kind of jangly and, and light as the other tracks. This one is pretty darn heavy, and Living Color definitely brought that sound. Yeah, it's a weird song, but I like it. Uh, it kind of ends suddenly with a like a tape loop or something too. Truck five, bimbos and idiots. Now there's a weird riff. Like if you can even call that a riff. Yeah. Um, it's kind of hangs together with like gang vocals almost. This track. Yeah, yeah. It's walking tall. He carries himself like a real man. He's got the whole world in his hands. <laughs> Featuring Jennifer Hawkins on guest vocals. Flip it over for 
Joyride. And my favorite part of this one is the kind of breakdown where it's just Steve yeah. and Bucky throwing down. Yeah, I have that written down too. It's a pretty chaotic track with the, the guitar is like kind of all over the place over the top until that breakdown. And yeah. it's it's uh, it's pretty it's pretty heavy again. Uh, the next one is Yama Yama Man. This is the song that Dan makes an appearance on vocals, and it's really great. Like, there's a flanger or something on it, and it's it's perfect. Um, I dig the backwards guitar solo. Cool how Bucky is kind of playing these interweaving complementary guitar parts that, um, you know, are panned hard right and left. Gives it a really interesting sound. Yeah, I like how, you know, you kind of lay off the the slap and pop for a track too and just yeah. keep it really groovy and funky on the fingers um, it works really well the next one is waking i i can't really hear a difference in sonic quality between the smart studio and the chicago sessions like no. it doesn't it, hang, really, it hangs together pretty it good it does yeah uh this almost sounds like a soul song but then it kind of goes into this rock chorus um super awesome discordant guitar riffing again uh, some great trumpet from Jim Hansen. Yeah, it's got everything too, right? Again, like the horns, some organ. Good track. Yep. Uh, the next one is Reprise, Reprise. Another funky rocker. Uh, some more great sax from Tony Jarvis. Great lyrics from Bucky. And then the last one is Spate and Ashbury. Steve just slapping the shit out of his bass. Uh, he says in the interview that he, he overplays on this record, but I don't think so. I, I think it's perfect, and it's, he, you know, he was just a really good player. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, you that's a really physical style to play, too, and to play it so well that he did. It's it's pretty good, and, I, and he is in full, I wrote down here, full slap mode on this track, full slap mode. Yeah, I remember when I was a kid, I had a Red Hot Chili Peppers VHS, like of a live concert. And it opens with like backstage footage of like, I just remember Chad Smith's taking a shit and Flea is putting um, super glue into this giant hole in his thumb. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. I used to read about that in like Bass Player Magazine about the uh, the guys who would play that way and they would put like super glue in there or they would put like these plastic, they would super glue these plastic bands to their thumbs hmm. to to protect just ridiculous yeah um i think steve says the answering machine message on this was left on bob wasserman's machine uh we talked a bit about him on the no contest episode he he contributed contributed to that record as well he was like i think he was their sound another one of the sound guys or something mm. for the tar babies this is a cool record i people should not just dismiss it as a generic funk rock no, no. Record of that era. It, it took me a few listens to really hear all the craziness that's going on. Uh, but I got into it after I listened to it about three or four times. Yeah. Like I really got into it. I think it would be really easy and also a big shame if people dismissed it as just kind of like, you know, chili peppers or something like that. It's not, it's unique and uh, great, great players and great songs on it. Um, what about the the artwork though? You you covered that a bit during the interview, but like, <laughs> I don't. I'm a, I'm afraid to describe it. Yeah, yeah. Created by Bucky, repping that amazing Madison scene from that era. Yeah, I'm sure there's dudes on here from other bands and stuff. But what about the back though? Yeah, it's also pretty wild. Yeah, 
Any dead wax, Ryan? Not on mine. Hmm. No. People like the tar babies though, man. Like when we did the no contest episode, people were pumped. Yeah, I mean, for me anyways, I mean, I didn't know much more than the no contest, but it was super cool to go to these more, you know, later era and then also the earlier tar babies tracks you know like on bone air and stuff like that um good record that i would not have taken the time to explore not for the show and totally worth it totally the early stuff and this later honey bubble very cool steve's playing on this record gives me a bone air (laughs) (laughs) have you been waiting since 2022 to use that yeah Probably, hey. Ballot result? Definitely ballot result, yep. Ballot result. I like a lot of tracks, but for me, again, I kind of gave it away. The uh, Rhino Agogo, the bass line, that's hands down number one for me. Yeah, my picks were Rhino Agogo, 90 pounds, and Waking. But we can do Rhino Agogo. That was yeah, a good one. so good. It's just so awesome. Hey, thanks, Steve, for being a guest on our show. It was great chatting yeah. with you. Ryan, what's next week? Next week, Brandt, we're going back to some Henry Kaiser. It's SST 237, the alternate versions, three inch CD. <laughs> Looking forward to it. Hey, everyone, thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at Mojack Pod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is mojackpod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.